Heather, welcome to the podcast. It is so wonderful to have you on. I am uh, so honored that you're you're with us today. Which, by the way, it's like nine o'clock at night where you are in Singapore. So we're so appreciative that you've taken the time with us today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And I, I think it's worse for you. It's early morning over there. So <laughs> I yes, don't we mind. Were ta- we were talking about like, she's got end of day hair. I've got early morning hair, like barely yeah. together. But it's all good. It's all good. We're here. All good. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you because, you know, first of all, you just launched your book. Uh, your background is in uh, global cross-functional, cross-functional, cross-cultural, uh, see, early morning, cross-cultural <laughs> communications. And I'm really interested to get into it with you today. So give us a little bit of a background on who you are and uh, what you do, but also the impact you're looking to make on the world. Mm. Uh, I love that question, the impact I'm looking to make on the world. That's really what it comes down to for all of us, yes. isn't it? Well, I was born and raised in California, but I've spent the last 20 years living abroad. So I left on the 4th of July, 20 years ago, my own personal Independence Day. I love thinking of it like that. that. And (laughs) in the last 20 years, I've been back and forth between Denmark and Singapore. My husband's Danish, so I've lived there a total of eight years, and I've had a total of 12 years here in Singapore. I started my company 15 years ago in Singapore, which is Global Speech Academy. And we are a communications consultancy training firm and coaching firm, helping top multinational leaders to communicate better, to speak up and show up and be confident with their global teams, regional teams, or now very much remote and dispersed Mm -hmm. teams. Uh, And so really anything that goes into communication, whether that's cross-cultural skills or it's building empathy and building human relationships and connection, uh, building confidence and presentation skills and articulation training to speak clearly for global audiences, we look at all of those factors. So yeah, that's what I've been spending my career doing. And the impact I hope to make on the world, which is the best part of your question, is I really want to see more global voices speaking up and showing up in the world. We've been listening to the same demographic of voices for a very long time that have been leading our world. And we're at a point right now where it looks like we're about to fall off the cliff and we need some new ideas. We need some new leadership. And so the people who could be listening today, I hope that I might inspire you to come forward with your bright ideas and to speak up in the world and inspire action in others for what's really meaningful for you and what you're really passionate about. I love that. Yes. Well, we're so... um grateful that you are doing this work and impacting the world the way you are. And there's a lot to unpack, I think, with some of the things you just said around uh, new voices, bringing global voices to the table. I think in the United States in particular, uh, you know, and, and around the globe, we've kind of prioritize the English language pretty Mm -hmm. heavily. (laughs) And I think we are now coming into with remote work. I mean, I mean, I think globalization has been happening for a while, but I think it Mm -hmm. is becoming a reality that your location doesn't always matter. And we've got the digital nomads who are moving to other countries or deciding to have multiple places where they work. So I think the conversation is, is now to be have to be having Mm -hmm. this, but also, um, yeah, I think organizations need help with that. There's a, I think there's a huge gap um, around how do we communicate globally. And so I would love to learn more about um, and tell us a little bit more about your book because this framework that we're going to talk about comes straight from it. So tell us about your book and the framework you've developed 
to help organizations and leaders lean into some action and accountability around this work? Hmm. Well, first, I mean, what you say about globalization is so true. I think even if you don't think you are in a global company, you really are. You can be sitting in your living room in my little hometown in California and never leave it, but Hmm. the world is coming to you, right? And so, yes, we have all these people moving out and around and dispersed and global, but even for those who don't ever leave, the world is coming to them. So we all need to start thinking a little bit differently about this. So to to get to your question around the Unmuted framework, the the new book is called Unmuted, How to Show Up, Speak Up, and Inspire Action. And so I've developed an unmuted framework that brings together all of these different pieces of the puzzle that I've been teaching, training, coaching, consulting on for the past 15 years plus. And so the Venn diagram that we've come up with here is conscious, confident, and connected communication. So if you think of each of those three as your big circles, then we have the overlaps and the middle, which is becoming truly unmuted when we are conscious, confident, and connected. So the conscious communication is all about knowing yourself so you can better understand others, knowing what your values are, knowing how you're showing up in the world. The confidence piece is how you actually open your mouth and speak up in the world. So are you confident in yourself and are you confident in your skills to do that? And then the connected piece is one that I see a lot of organizations struggling with, especially throughout the pandemic. And that's building a psychologically safe, inclusive environment where people feel comfortable speaking Mm. up. So how do we form those human connections? How do we build empathy and trust uh, so that we can bring out the very best in our people? And so I really believe these three areas, if we could start balancing them better and mastering our skills in all of those areas, we can start to communicate a lot more successfully across cultures and languages and across our differences in general. Yeah, and I I love, let's start with conscious, because I think that Mm. one is the core. It's the one I'm assuming you kind of maybe start with if we were to, none of this is linear, of course, but um, Mm -hmm. you talk about your values. And so how does one, how does one learn more about their values, but also widen their perspective, right? Because when we're talking Mm. about communicating globally, it means perhaps even being flexible and and living outside of your values and understanding other people's values, or maybe even changing your values a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. being nimble around, like, how do we reevaluate those? Because I think with the great resignation, with other, you know, other buzzwords, right? People are reevaluating their values right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk more about I, that. That's so well said. Yeah. yeah. We're absolutely re-eval- reevaluating our values. And for some of us, I think we're finally discovering our values. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how long we go through life without really realizing what our values are. I mean, if we just randomly ask people on the street, what are your top three values? I, nobody really has a good answer for that. We have to sit down deliberately and think this through and have self-reflection around it as well as, like you say, you know, uh, confront other values, confront people who are different from us so that we can see our own values. I think I learned the most about myself through my 20 years living abroad. It's not until I ran up against something that was so different from my own culture that I thought, wait, what? Why do you do it like that? Oh, wow. I had no idea that was so meaningful for me. You know, um, a good example, this is a crazy one, and I don't know why this is the first that came to mind, but it's actually switching. It's my husband. The first time he came to America for Christmas, in my family on Christmas Eve, my grandmother would make homemade pizza. 
That was our family tradition, homemade pizza. And she only made it once a year, only on Christmas Eve. Well, for a Dane, Christmas Eve is very, very specific. There's very specific food that you eat on Christmas Eve. And it's very special. And this was like the world was ending when he had to have pizza on Christmas (laughs) Eve, you know, but it taught him like the value of, of how special his Christmas traditions were to him, which he hadn't really realized how much it meant until he was confronted with something that was so different. And he thought, how am I going to live like this? And this is such a silly example, but Mm. it happens every day in work, in life. When you come up against something that you aren't expecting and you think, whoa, I never would have thought to have pizza on Christmas. What on earth are you doing? And then you have to come to terms with that. And hmm, can I try that? Does that infringe on my own values to do that? Because what I talk about in Unmuted is authentic adaptability. And you were hinting at exactly this idea with the flexibility of being able to try new things. But I think it's important we know where do we draw the line? And that's why you have to know your values and what you stand for. So when I lived in Denmark, for example, this is another crazy story, but one I included in the book, but I almost didn't, um, the changing room culture. I've been a swimmer and water polo player my entire life. And I played water polo for the Danish National League. There were only three teams. It's not as impressive as it sounds. (laughs) But the changing culture there. You go into the changing room and it's communal and you have to strip naked, shower in front of everyone. There are signs on the wall that show you which body parts must use soap and water to wash (laughs) before you go. Okay, thank you. Another American who's like, I could not do that. Right? That would would be a little awkward for me. It would, right? And I've grown up my whole life as a swimmer. And so I change into my bathing suit. I go under the showers. I start rinsing off and I'm going to go into the pool. And there's like a guard there. And she comes up to me like, no, no, no. Points at the signs. Makes me strip in front of her. And she watches me to make sure that I am using soap in the proper areas. I was humiliated. And after like the first season of water polo, I'm like, forget it. I'm not doing this. When I had my children in Denmark, I never took them to a swimming hall because I didn't want to deal with that culture. That for me Mm. crossed a line where nobody tells me who I have to show my body to. And so that crossed a line for me uh, in my very puritanical American upbringing, right? (laughs) Um, So you have to know for yourself, though, what are your values? Where is that line you won't cross? And we don't really know. Many, many people don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an important, um, you know, I just kind of like making a parallel to the world of work, right? Which is, I think we are now in this awakening of, we've talked about values at work, right? We've done the strategic Mm -hmm. workshops where you define your values and behaviors. And we've been, you know, we've been a part of that work for a very long time. Organizations have been thinking about values. Mm -hmm. But I think this is really like, the the rubber has met the road you know where i think people and especially this upcoming generation is saying every part of my lifestyle and my day you know needs to be some kind of reinforcement of my values right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um but i think there's also this again this awareness and understanding of other people's values but yeah. there is this line of when do I start experiencing someone else's values and when do I kind of revert back to my, my own, I guess? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very complex topic because it is. to your point, it's kind of this constant awareness of, okay, I'm experiencing this. This is uncomfortable. Does this fall outside the realm of my own values? If it does, maybe I could rethink my values and maybe yeah. – 
you know, reevaluate that conversation in my head, or it is so far off that mm-hmm. I'm I'm standing firm. So mm-hmm. how does when it comes to workplace culture? So we've got a lot mm-hmm. of world events happening right now, oh, right? Yeah. Uh, lots of really tough conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, that are hitting people at their core ethics and integrity and yes. values. Yes. How do you navigate that? I know it's a really yeah. tough question, but that's a hugely tough that? question. <laughs> that's what we're all trying to <laughs> figure sorry. out, right? Yes. <laughs> Didn't Put mean me to throw on the that spot. You know? <laughs> it just it, it came up because I think there's so so many conversations, especially executives and people who are running mm-hmm. businesses, and they know they have different, a diverse workforce with different mm-hmm. perspectives. Mm-hmm. But they are also taking a stance, right, as an organization yes. around their values. Yes. Exactly. I think it's it is getting more and more difficult because we want to live our values at work, like you said. It's not just clocking in and clocking out anymore. We want to find a match with a company where we feel feel like we're living our values, fulfilling our purpose on a daily basis. And I think from a leadership perspective, we have a much higher expectation outside of work that our leadership are standing up. For their values. So it's one thing to say you have these values and the company stands for this, but then the CEO also needs to be publicly speaking about this, standing up for it, posting on LinkedIn, being public, speaking at conferences. This is a kind of responsibility that we didn't see before from business leaders. The few um, exceptional leaders were always doing this, but I think now it's become more of a requirement that if you're top leadership, you have to stand for something. And your personal brand is going to be just as important as your company's brand. And this is really interesting because as we watch professionals move between companies or take on new roles. How is that going to start changing what we see of them publicly, I wonder? Hmm. You know, you have to really start thinking that what you stand up for and believe and talk about within the company and also externally, that it is in sync with yourself. Because otherwise, at some point, that's all going to break. And that beautiful picture is not going to stand anymore when people say, wait a second, you were just working at this company and now you've switched to this one. You were talking all about sustainability. Now you want to go work for oil and gas? Where did that come from? You know, people now need to really think about, it's not just about making a buck. It's not just about the money of, of high profile leadership positions. You need to be doing something that is in alignment with what you stand for in the world. And that's, I think, a new challenge people haven't thought through completely, uh, especially those who have been on the fast track to success for so many years. And the industry wasn't necessarily a consideration. They could be the COO across any right. industry, really. Um, mm-hmm. And now they need to really find alignment with who am I and what do I stand for in the world and what company can I help to achieve a larger mission that's in alignment with what I believe. But these are all super difficult challenges, both individually and from a leadership perspective, but also making everyone happy. I mean, how do we do that? And I think that's why in many cases, a lot of people feel muted at this stage instead of unmuted. They feel like if I say something, am I, who am I going to offend? Can I say anything without offending someone? How do I speak in a way that isn't offensive? Um, and that, I think, is really hard. And we need to be very, very careful with, with cancel culture and these backswing movements that we aren't silencing people who do have good ideas when they're trying their best and they're trying not to offend, but that we somehow learn to educate in a polite manner and have civil conversations, which we're lacking so much 
right now in business and social media and news and you name it. Um, we really need to go back to basics and start treating each other as humans and respecting one another for our differences and having civil conversations and try to lead with understanding each other and giving some flexibility and and helping to educate others when they do overstep or they do offend instead of just becoming so angry and so extreme in our views. Uh, it's not getting us anywhere. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, there's, there's like a big spectrum around these issues, right? Where yeah. I think, you know, there's definitely like, I, I'm right, you're wrong. And, mm. <laughs> and that's that. Um, And then there's, you know, I think there's some issues that are just they've reached their they've reached their expiration date for grace, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so we're also I think we're also at the point where we're just like it's time for action. It's time for accountability. And so how do you have those conversations Mm -hmm. in a way that is going to advance some of the work, I think, is what you're getting to. Yes. And I think that's the education, the education piece, Mm -hmm. right? Of of having open conversations in organizations around what are micro inequities? What are microaggressions? How do we stop them? How do we talk about them? Uh, Let's create a space where it's okay to talk about these things that we aren't going to be accusatory, but we're going to point them out and we're going to educate and be open to that education. You know, I mean, there are topics that I feel very strongly about. And um, one of them is very much, you know, the equality between men and women. And I have male colleagues and I will call them out. And we have relationships where um, where I say and they'll, they'll be grateful for that because of the relationship we've built. But that relationship needs to be there first. That psychological safety needs to be there. That connected workplace needs to be there so we can have these conversations. So I can say, see that post you just put up on Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever it was? That's not good. That's going over the line. And then I can explain why. And they say, gosh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that. You're right. Okay. I'll take it down. And But you have to have that relationship with the person to be able to have that conversation. And I think we aren't quite there in a lot of workplaces to have built close enough, strong enough relationships built on really strong mutual respect where we can just speak openly and say, hey, will you just let me know if I do overstep or I say something that you find offensive? Because I really don't mean to do that. But I'm aware that I could do that So because mm-hmm. we all could in all different ways without knowing it. And, and I would hope someone would tell me in a very respectful way, Heather, you know, there are some groups of people that wouldn't appreciate the way you phrase that. Mm-hmm. And then I could say, really? What did I say? How did I say it? Because I never have an intention to offend. But how can I learn if someone doesn't teach me, right? Um, but I think that's where we're right on the brink of, of being able to do this better. And if we can sit down in our organizations to create those, those environments where this is okay, that maybe we can start moving forward. So you mentioned the connected part of the, mm. you know, because that's really, I mean, to summarize what you just said and kind of culminating that into the connection and creating the psychological safety within organizations. So, you know, how does an organization do that? I mean, it's such a complex topic. You know, psychological safety, it's been around for a while, but it it is really taking off, I feel like, Mm -hmm. in these conversations around leadership Mm -hmm. and building businesses Mm -hmm. and organizations and spaces and communities where people can share their voice. So what does that mean? What does that look like? And what are some things that leaders can do to create that space? 
Yeah, I think that psychological safety, primarily in my experience with my clients, it is a top-down shift. But I think that doesn't mean we can let everyone off the hook. We need to also work from the bottom up. So when we're working in organizations to create an unmuted transformation, what we're really doing is starting with the top leadership to get them on board to start walking the talk, to become more vulnerable, to share more stories of success and failure, because we need to reframe what failure looks like. We need to not be afraid of that. We need to have conversations about what we can learn. Uh, you know, all those ideas around failing forward. And these are all really good ideas if we can begin to implement them better. So the top has to be on board with this. Because what happens when you say, oh, please come to me with any problems and please speak up and please, I want to hear your views. And then they come and tell you and it's like, oh, no, actually... Uh, we already made a decision on that. I mean, I've seen this over and over again as we've re-entered normalcy when we started going back to work where leadership have sent out surveys saying, would you like remote work to continue? How many days do you think you'd like to be at home? And the leadership's already made a decision that you're going to get max one day at home. But everybody replied in their surveys, we want to stay at home. We want four days at home. We want three days at home, whatever it might be. And the leadership's like, oh, well, that's interesting, but sorry. <laughs> like, that's not like, really nice creating psychological safety. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> nice to know, but actually we already made another decision. That mm. That's not helpful. So leadership's got to be on board. But then we also need to be encouraging from the ground up that we are the only ones who can press unmute for ourselves. So the people from the bottom up also need to start sharing their stories. So we've been encouraging companies to do... Um, Hashtag campaigns through their intranet, storytelling evenings of, of learning to become unmuted or what is their unmuted mission in the world or having theme nights where mm. people can share their stories. They can get to know each other, especially now that we're coming back together and we're looking for ways to connect. It's a great idea for bringing everyone in the company, not just the leadership, but getting to know each other at a different level through different kinds of stories and more personal sharing and without going over the line for people. But, you know, when telling a story about a time you did feel muted and how that affected you and your confidence, and then people go, wow, that really resonated with me. And it creates that kind of connection we're looking for. So we do want leadership must absolutely be on board and respond appropriately but also from the bottom up, we need to create campaigns and a movement within the organization to embrace this kind of change. Yeah, and I think you bring up a great point, which is leadership has to role model this. I think there's so mm -hmm. much work right now happening around culture and culture change and how do we want to show up and ways of working. Mm -hmm. and, and leadership thinks it's like this uh, top-down activity where they just say, you are psychologically safe. And then everyone's <laughs> looking at each other like, uh, no, we're not. <laughs> so no. there's like this, this gap and this bridge, I think, between leadership and the rest of the employee population. Yes. And yes. I think the only way we can create an environment, if you want to create a speak up culture, is mm -hmm. to actually create environments that feel safe. And that takes work. Mm -hmm. That takes role a modeling. It just doesn't take, you know, it, it, it doesn't become if you just say it. <laughs> That's yeah. what I always and, have to tell not, executives. Yeah. yeah. It's not a one day seminar either, right? No. We love to throw training on our people. Oh, mm. they need better communication skills. Give them a day of presentation skills training. That does nothing. And that was another reason I wrote the book because we've been dumping skills training on our staff for so long. And what change is it really creating? It's because that's not how change happens. No. Even creating new habits and skills.
skills. That's not how it works. You, you need to do this over a long period of time. You need to be measuring the, the advancement or lack thereof. There, it's a much larger process. And the way we go about training and development, I think, is flawed in a lot of ways, that it needs to be much more strategic and integrated into the organization's goals, values, strategy. So we need to start looking at that more and giving HR a more strategic role, which I think we're going that direction. But uh, HR managers are some of the most brilliant people I see in organizations, and they aren't given the authority to truly create the change for their people that they could. So um, that's just another side note, I think, of, of really enabling HR to help create that change. That's really their job. Yeah. And, and training is really just, it's one little slice of the pie when it comes to culture change, yeah. like teeny yeah. little slice. The smallest. It's, yes. Yeah. It is a vehicle. It is a reinforcement opportunity. It's a way to give people more confidence. It's a build skill yeah. to get where you want to go. But really it comes down to, you know, leadership is a mirror of culture. It comes mm-hmm. down to the spaces, the things we tolerate, right? Accountability yeah. Yeah. and the hard stuff and it's hard work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It is hard work. It is. We've got and, our and work this, cut out for us, Angela. I know. I know. <laughs> Just, I mean, our, our, I mean, I hope one day I work myself out of a job, but, um, yeah, you know, no, I, I don't that's think we're always the goal. <laughs> no, I, I think we will be very well employed for the rest of our lives. <laughs> yes. Yes. Sadly. This will, t- this will yeah. take time. Um, and I'm always yeah. screaming from the, you know, the mountaintops about this, but, you know, it gets us to confidence, right? Which is kind of the mm-hmm. last part of the Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. And again, back to connected, you can't really create the connection without, I guess, building trust, helping people understand mm-hmm. that they they have the, they are empowered to be unmuted, right? Um, Absolutely. So, so how does an organization fill that gap? You know, because mm-hmm. I kind of almost see this, you know, because I'm an IO psychologists. So we always see like the now and the end and how do we fill this in? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if if conscious is kind of the the end goal, right, where everyone's kind of living into their values, they're able to speak Mm up. Uh, We are considering other people's values. Um, And then you have like a lack of psychological safety. How do you fill in that gap to make everybody feel confident and have trust in the environment that leaders are creating in order to to really live into that. Yeah, that that confidence piece is interesting because I break it up into self-confidence as well as skills confidence. And so this is the only place really where that little training sliver pops into Mm -hmm. the equation. That's in helping to build the skills confidence. So if you truly don't know how to write a good email, then okay, let's fill that gap. Let's teach you that skill. That's something we can learn. That's easy, okay? But the self-confidence piece, <laughs> and I mean, talk about psychology, that is the piece that's really, really difficult. And it's very personal. Mm-hmm. So you could be a very conscious individual. You listen well. You're very aware of difference. You know yourself. And you're also well-connected. And you know that you're supported at work. And yet still something is holding you back from speaking up. And I have had clients where this is the issue, where it isn't so much about their skill set 
or their environment. It's simply that they were told from a very young age that their ideas didn't matter. They ha have a belief system that tells them, if I speak up, I'll be punished, or I was never allowed to voice my ideas. My ideas are not good enough. I am not good enough. I am an imposter. I shouldn't even have this job. I don't know how I got it. I don't know why they hired me. Whereas everyone in the environment is like, we want to hear your ideas. You're so talented. You're so wonderful. But the person themselves is just having difficulty pressing unmute. And in this case, you can probably solve that question a lot easier than I can, because those are situations where I say, listen, this is not my sphere. This is not my work to do. And that's where I need to refer them to other specialists who can help them to build that self-worth, which is mm. really outside of my personal sphere, but is such an important element in this full equation of how do we gain that confidence to show up and speak up in the organization. And it's a very sad situation when I find people like this because they have so much to offer and so much to give, and they're the only ones stopping themselves from, from expressing that to the world. And it goes back to, you know, honestly, I think it does go back to the, the connected part of your graph, which mm -hmm. is maybe in the past, right? Uh, because I think our our past kind of reflects our future in a, in a lot of mm. a lot of times. How you handle that, right? Like you can honor your past, but then build a different future, or you can let your past kind of impact negatively or positively what's to come. So if I have been in situations where I have been muted or I've been in rooms where my ideas didn't resonate because, you know, people couldn't even really relate to me, um, mm -hmm. which kind of gets me to, you know, you had this wonderful TED talk about um, languages um, yeah. and you talked about the idea of like accent bias. And I think mm -hmm. bias, there's obviously we could spend four hours on talking about bias and how many, you know, how many of them we just unconsciously work through throughout the day. But I think the English language, <clears throat> there's so much emphasis put on it, but our world is becoming more and more globalized. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I've worked with executives who, you know, perhaps start hiring, uh, you know, folks from other countries or you know, people who have lived here for a while, but have a heavy accent, let's say. Mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. they need to change. They yeah. need to learn the English language. They need to articulate the English language versus why don't we start to open mm -hmm. our perspective a little bit? So maybe you could summarize that TED Talk and we'll make sure to link it in the in the show notes. But tell us more about how that fits into the, yes. the, the diagram. Yeah, what you're talking about right now is really the epitome of accent privilege. Those of us who are born into the English language that are born into a prestigious variety of English uh, that, you know, if you just think of think of just native English speakers in America, we have very specific ideas uh, when we hear someone speak with a southern accent versus a New Jersey accent, versus a Boston accent, versus a California Valley girl. Uh, we have immediate ideas of what these people stand for, how well educated they are, what their socio socioeconomic status is. Mm -hmm. You know, we can easily group them into that. Then if we add race and ethnicity on top of that, and we talk about varieties of African-American English, Latino English, all of these kinds of additional biases on top of it, 
this is really the issue. And then we have foreign language, right? People who are coming in, immigrants into the United States, new citizens, people who have possibly lived there 30 years and still have an accent, right? Mm -hmm. I did eight years in Denmark. I still have an American accent, an English accent. I always will for the rest of my life. That's just how it works. And we seem to think when we are privileged that oh, well, why can't they just change it? Why can't they speak more clearly? This isn't something you can just flip a switch and change. Uh, And it's not something you should have to change because it's your identity. It's who you are. So yeah, that's really what that TEDx is all about. And it's called Two Billion Voices, How to Speak Bad English Perfectly. Because Mm -hmm. all of these people who think, oh, my English is so bad. It's not bad at all. If you are being understood and you understand others, then you're speaking English perfectly. There is nothing bad about it. And we need to stop trying to reduce people's accents, reduce their identities, and instead learn to recognize other accents, tuning our own ears. And this is a skill set that we've never learned. We've never needed to learn it. But there are ways for us to start learning. How can I um, figure out an accent? If I listen to someone for just a couple minutes, I can immediately, because I've done this for years and years, I know immediately, oh, this person pronounces TH like this. They pronounce A like this, O like that. I can immediately hear the differences and I'm just decoding. I'm decoding the accent. And then I'm able to tune my ear much faster. But the more contact you have with an individual, the easier it gets. The problem is when we're biased, we often avoid that person. We don't want to listen to that person. We're embarrassed and we're embarrassed for them more than we're embarrassed for ourselves. And and this is reaching into every area of our lives from hiring to promotions um, to the legal system and judges who who put down rulings based on accent, witnesses who have accents who aren't taken seriously by juries. It just continues on and on and on. So it's a huge, huge issue that we don't talk about enough in diversity and inclusion. And that's probably the the piece of the puzzle it it plays into most. Um, But when it comes to our our unmuted framework, I talk about it a lot in the conscious bubble around how do we have inclusion also of different accents as well as all of our other differences and cultural differences. Yeah, and it it gets to the question, you know, what is an accent, right? Like what what Mm -hmm. is considered an accent? I think, Mm -hmm. you know, if we think everything, I mean, obviously it gets back to the individual. So if someone's dialect tone sounds different than mine that's an accent exactly uh, and every right. single one of us has an accent right yes. a lot of people will say yes. i don't know you know i'll start a seminar and say everyone who has an accent when they speak english please raise your hand and there will always be this group <laughs> of a very certain demographic who does not raise their hands and it's like right. wait a second <laughs> You have you. one too. Yeah. I have one too. We all have accents. Even when I go home now to California, then all my friends and family say, you talk funny because I've spent so long abroad and I've made very minor changes to the way that I speak that sound different than the typical Californian where I'm from. Uh, and that's just because I've lived abroad for so long and I don't necessarily realize it, that I'll use some British pronunciations here and there, or I'll have a clearer T in places or just little, little things that I haven't even consciously done. Um, but yeah, everybody has an accent and you will believe someone has an accent if they sound different from you. Uh, right. So that's pretty much the whole world because we yes. all have very unique ways of speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if I could summarize this for, you know, the leaders who are listening out there, I think the I think the um, the action is 
expose yourself to differences. And I think we talk about that pretty, you know, frequently when it comes to DE&I. This is not just about having the black friend or having the, you know, whatever, you know, like I have, I have those the friends, boxes, ticking the boxes yeah. and saying, you know, highlighting that the, the goal is actually immerse yourself a little bit in other mm-hmm. cultures and mm-hmm. differences and yeah. traveling abroad. And be curious and be curious. curious. Ask people if you can't travel and, and have those experiences right. and live abroad for 20 years, like I have, yeah. you know, just be curious, you know, ask people about their cultures, ask about where they're from. Um, ask them to tell you stories. This is why I love the storytelling evenings and having these kinds of events within the company where people can share these kinds of stories and you can learn something about them. Uh, it's it's really exciting, I think, to learn mm-hmm. about each other in that way. Even if it's like a cooking class and somebody shares a, a family recipe from whatever heritage they're from. I mean, we're so diverse in America. We have so much history from so many places. There's so much more we could learn about each other to have a different kind of appreciation for each other uh, instead of being scared or fearful or thinking you're different from me. It's more about being curious about how are we the same and finding those similarities as well. Yeah, I love the point around curiosity because I do think we approach these things with, oh, that's different, that's foreign, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the feeling versus I'm curious or, you know, being curious enough to then be able to ask questions. And that's what I think mm-hmm. opens up the conversations. So yeah. I could talk to you all day about this. I, I think this topic <laughs> is fascinating and, you know, language matters. And I've been in situations where, you know, I haven't always said the right thing. You always haven't said the right thing. But I think what we're talking about is creating spaces where we can equally have a voice and align that with our values, um, but also call people out in some cases or call them to the stage to say, hey, let's talk more about that because yeah. from my perspective, that's problematic. And mm-hmm. I want to have a conversation around that. It's about education as well and accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell everybody where to find your book. Give us the full name so we can make sure to include in the show notes. And then how they can find you if they want to reach out to you, work with you, collaborate, partner with you. What's the best way to um, get in contact? Oh, yeah, I'd love that. Um, Getting in touch with me is easy. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm all over social media. You can find both me and my book at heatherhanson.com slash unmuted for the book in particular. And my corporate site is globalspeechacademy.com. And the book is Unmuted, How to Show Up, Speak Up, and Inspire Action. And you can find that everywhere online and hopefully in some of your local bookstores as well. Look it up. Uh, I know if it's not in stock, you can easily order it. Uh, but it's all over the United States at this point and the whole world. So it's, it's out everywhere. Wonderful. Heather, thank you so much for your time. Again, I know now it's closer to 10 p.m. where you are. So uh, I'm hoping <laughs> yeah. that after this, you get a chance to, to go to sleep. And, I'm and, off to uh, bed. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. It's Thanks, been such Heather. a pleasure.